everyone, and welcome to this latest instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast. And I'm delighted today to welcome Duncan Weldon, a writer, former political advisor, economist, and loads of other things. He also, I notice, has a Substack. Duncan, I don't know what that means, but congratulations and welcome. Thank you very much. And Substack, um, you know, is an email newsletter service. I've launched one called Value Added. It's about macroeconomics, political economy, you know, the kind of things listeners to your podcast are interested in. There we go. That's the hard sell. But actually, above and beyond all of that, what I really want to talk to you about is, of course, you've got a new book out which deals with the rather sort of grand issue of 200 plus years of British economic policy. So firstly, I want to say congratulations, because it's a really, really good read. And I've never said that to an economist before. But secondly, it's full of just amazing sort of pithy bits of wisdom. And one of them is you say that in the short term, politicians overstate their, their influence. And in the long term, they underestimate it, which seems like a really interesting idea. But can you expand on it for us? Yeah, of course. So I think policymakers in general, politicians in particular, tend to like to think of themselves as being at the centre of attention in terms of shaping their own destiny. But I think actually, when you look at the long run of British economic history, then, you know, there's only so much you can do in any one budget or even one or two budgets budgets or legislative programs, you know, politicians tend to overestimate what they're going to achieve on a 12 to 24 to even 36 month view. But some of the changes politicians can make can really have a lasting long run influence by shaping the path down which the economy develops. So if you look at a Thatcher, if you look at an Attlee, if you look at a, you know, a Robert Peel back in the 19th century, they make changes much well, you know, are affecting the economy decades after those politicians have left office. We're full of questions about the pandemic and its implications, but do you think one of its implications, given the scale of governmental involvement in the economy as a result of lockdown, will be that politicians are going to be less likely to underestimate their impact in the future? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's certainly, you know, there's almost a sense, isn't there, sometimes that, you know, politicians are throwing their hands up the government at the moment saying, you know, there is going to be a price to be paid for the pandemic. We took all of these extraordinary measures during it to cushion the blow, but now we have no choice but to run quite a tight fiscal policy. You know, I mean, I feel, you know, the legacy of the pandemic, certainly, you know, where the Treasury is thinking at the moment, is that it's almost constrained their freedom of action. Uh, we've just been talking about dramatic change, but actually the lesson I take is one of sort of continuity. You know, you talk about path dependency and there are a couple of things. One is path dependency when it comes to things that we think are really novel. People choosing not to turn up on Mondays, for instance. And there's a lot of chat on Twitter today about people being in favour of a four day week. Did that work well back then? And are there lessons for us now? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? So, you know, economic historians, economists, we all look back at the, the industrial revolution, you know, around the turn of the 19th century as this big change. But before the industrial revolution came what some people call the industrious revolution. This time when people in Northern Europe, particularly in England and the Dutch Republic, started working much longer years. And you know, that increased working year, that rise in hours, was a really important factor underpinning the growth that came. You know, people started working longer years, they started working longer hours. In economic terms, the labour supply proved very, the, the supply of labour proved very flexible. And yeah, I mean, St. Mondays, you know, I'm sure many people would now, you know, bemoan the loss of St. Mondays, this idea you would just not turn up to work on a Monday and declare you were celebrating St. Mondays Day. That sounds like our office a little bit, I'm sorry. To say. <laughs> but anyway, but, but are there lessons now about the debate about the four-day week now? Because it seems to me one lesson to what you've just 
just said is we can expect productivity to go down. And at a time when we have a government insisting on the need for a high wage, high productivity economy, that might not be the way ahead. I mean, I, th- I think this debate over the four day week is genuinely fascinating. because You know, the big picture of British economic history, British working hours since the late 19th century has been a decline in the working week. You know, people used to work 70 hour weeks in the late 19th century. That, that slowly declined over time. And as we got productivity growth, workers took some of those gains in the form of higher incomes and some of those gains in terms of working less and having more leisure time. What's fascinating is that process seems to have really slowed down, almost stopped over the last 30 or so years. You know, the um, the working week hasn't really declined particularly for the last few decades. So I think it's really interesting that we're again having a debate of maybe people would like to work a shorter week. Maybe if productivity is growing, rather than taking that in the form of higher wages, people would rather have more leisure time. And I think the pandemic has fed into that in terms of, you know, changing working patterns, people reassessing what they want to be doing. There was a very big if in that sentence, though, wasn't there? Productivity is growing. And that seems to be a bit of a sort of hardy perennial problem for the British economy, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, when economic historians in 50 or 60 years time sit down to write about the 2010s in Britain. The big story of 2010s Britain is productivity growth slowing. Now, the government is now talking about wanting a high-wage, high-productivity economy. I'm good for them. I've, you know, I've never met a government that wants a low-wage, low-productivity economy. The problem with productivity is, you know, economists all agree it's vitally important that, you know, in the long run, it's probably the single most important um, economic indicator. You know, it's by becoming more productive that we get richer as a society, richer as individuals. The problem is, of course, no one quite knows what drives productivity in the long run. And the government at the moment is quite keen to talk up the higher wages aspect, but they don't really seem to have a strategy for the the second part of that, the productivity part. Interesting. One of the things that drives productivity is trade, isn't it? We had to bring Brexit in at some point, but it does seem at best paradoxical that at a time when we're making trade with our nearest and largest trading partner more difficult and more expensive, we're also pressing for an increase in productivity. Won't, Won't Brexit work in the opposite direction? Or is that nice? No, I'd say, you know, most most economic models would say if you put a bit of friction into the trading relationship with your largest trading partner, if you make it a bit harder to trade with the European Union, you will trade less with the European Union overall trade will fall and trade drop trade is a driver of productivity. You know, I think one argument I make in the book, which is that, you know, joining the then European Economic Community in the 1970s, early 1970s was a big break for the British economy. It increased the amount of competition, both by exposing domestic firms to more imports and by offering exporters access to a larger market. And it helped improve competition in Britain. Competition in the British economy had been lagging in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. We were a bit more isolated from the global economy. There was more cartelization domestically, some nationalized firms, etc. And that exposure to competition and a larger market, which began in the 1970s, you started to see the impact in the 1980s. And it's in the 1980s and the 1990s that Britain has a good run of productivity growth. It starts to narrow the gap with Western Europe. Now, that's off, often the Thatcher governments and their reforms get most of the credit for that. But, and this really annoys Thatcherites, but I think a lot of the credit actually should go to Ted Heath's government for bringing Britain into the EEC and leaving Europe. The worry is it leads to less competition, less dynamism, less productivity growth. I mean, I mean that's, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, how much does leaving turn the gains of joining on their head? I mean, how big a shift for the British economic model is Brexit, do you think? I think it's a huge shift. Oh, it's, I should say, it's potentially a huge shift. It's it's a big shift in terms of, you know, we just don't really have examples 
of something of a country leaving something like the European single market. So yeah, we're almost in sort of uncharted territory there. Now, there are, of course, choices as to what Brexit means. You know, we could, and you know, the government, I don't think, has really made up its mind on this. If Brexit means less trade, if it means less domestic competition, if it means sheltering domestic firms from foreign competition, then I think that has potentially quite a serious impact on productivity. But we're really thinking about sort of the long run hit from Brexit, where, you know, we've avoided those sort of cliff edge scenarios that people warned about. So this isn't, you know, this isn't an economic car crash. This is sort of a slow loss of tyre pressure. Have we avoided the cliff edge or was it Project Fear? Okay, I, I, I like to think that politicians are rational to some extent. And, you know, I think I think a cliff edge, yes, it could have happened, but I think it would have happened by accident rather than design. You know, I remember, you know, years ago when I was working at Newsnight covering sort of the Greek government standoff with the Eurozone countries, um, you know, in 2015 when um, Syriza were first elected again, you know, there was lots of talk of is Greece going to leave the euro? But in the end, I just couldn't see, you know, the domestic political coalition to do that in Greece. It always seemed sort of bluff and bluster on both sides rather than something that was on the cards. If it was going to happen, it was going to happen almost by accident because of the brinksmanship rather than by design. And I always thought a cliff edge, no deal Brexit was the same. Both sides would, you know, play a hardball. Both would be playing chicken not chicken, and not wanting to swerve. When you're playing chicken, you might accidentally have a car crash, but that's not what anyone's aiming for. Going back to path dependency, the other sort of slightly more depressing path dependency in your book is when you're talking about sort of inequality in the UK. And you, you, t- you spend a, a bit of time talking about knowledge workers being the key to a city's economic performance. And what you argue is that the number of knowledge workers in 1911 was the best single way of predicting the number of knowledge workers in a place in 2011. Two questions, I suppose. Is that really true, I suppose, is the first, because it's a staggering piece of information. But secondly, does that make you inherently pessimistic about the possibilities for the sort of structural economic change that levelling up is meant to employ? Okay, so taking them two parts. So firstly, you know, that's that um, 1911 knowledge workers being the single best predictor of the number of knowledge workers in a city in 2013 was from a Centre for Cities report a few years ago, which is both one of the most interesting think tank reports I've ever read, and also, you know, as, as you allude to, one of the most depressing. But does it make me pessimistic about the prospects for, you know, levelling up? You know, levelling up's an interesting thing, isn't it? That, you know, it sort of appeared out of nowhere in January 2020, and suddenly you couldn't speak to the government about any issue without them answering in terms of how this would help with levelling up. And then the the pandemic came along, it dropped back for a bit, and now it's, you know, here with a vengeance. I mean, you know, one one lesson of the book is this is not new. You know, you've got the special area schemes in the 1930s. You've got a very active regional policy in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and 70s. You've got attempts at, you know, enterprise zones and all of this under Thatcher in the 80s, all the way up to regional development agencies under Blair and Brown, and then Osborne talking about rebalancing growth so it wasn't so dependent on London and the South. East, you know, we've had approaching a hundred years of British politicians saying they would like a bit less growth in London and the South East and a bit more elsewhere. I mean, the problem with these sort of strategies in Britain is there's been little consistency with them. You know, different governments come, they try something for a few years, they don't get immediate results they try something else. We don't have that sort of long-term commitment. And, you know, your regional pattern of economic growth is to an extent a story of the sort of sectoral pattern of your growth. One reason that London and the South East have had a very good three decades is, you know, they've got more sort of finance, those sort of sectors that have been doing very well. The one thing we do know about sectoral strategies and industrial strategies is 
the need to last for a long time to give firms the confidence that they can invest for the future in a programme which will stick. And I think by my count, the UK is now on its fifth industrial strategy since 2010. So again, we just don't have that long-term framework which lasts. And that makes me quite pessimistic about the prospects of levelling up being any different. So one of the, one of my favourite phrases from the book is where you describe the UK as Portugal with Singapore in the bottom corner. Would you stand by that now? I would, I would. It's annoyed a few Portuguese people, that description. Um, <laughs> but, but I think, you know, that's, that's the fascinating thing about Britain. You know, in terms of GDP per capita, you know, output per head, we are a very rich country. But when you look at the regional level, you know, it looks rather different. It looks like London and the southeast are very high income areas, you know, compared to other countries right up there at the top of um, Northern Europe. But much of the Midlands, much of the North, a fair bit of Scotland, much of Wales, much of the southwest of England. You know, I mean, the GDP per capita numbers are, are genuinely more akin to Southern Europe than Northern. No, no, it is absolutely striking when you see those figures on a chart. Listen, we're going to take a very, very short break for some shameless plugs, and we'll be back with you in a few seconds. Sorry to interrupt this fantastic podcast. My name's Catherine Barnard, and I wanted to tell you about our wonderful newsletter that comes out each week full of news and views. And then, if you're really interested, follow us on Twitter too. One of the, one of the lessons I took from the book, Duncan, is policymakers and economic policymakers in particular could do with reading a bit more history. That is to say, you know, as you say, everything's been tried before and actually it would probably be worthwhile people acquainting themselves with what happened the last time we tried it before trying again. Is that fair? Oh, completely. And I think it's actually, it's a more general problem with economics. Now this, this is changing and there are some better curriculums out there. But, you know, when I, when I studied economics um, at university, I did the economic history paper because I was interested in it, but most of my peers didn't. Economics is bizarrely a subject where it's perfectly possible to study it, to do a degree in it, whatever, without ever learning any economic history or only learning very recent economic history. And it always struck me it's a subject where it's almost better to start with history, with the empirical data, and then to learn the theory later. And I think if you learn the empirical data and the history first and then learn the theory, you can see how the theory reflects reality or not. Whereas if you study the theory first, the danger is you then look at the empirical evidence and try and fit it to your theory, rather than trying to fit your theories and your models to what's actually happening. You know, the, the way to get ahead is with clever data work and clever theorizing, rather than practical policy advice, or ensuring that some of your cleverer models fit actual reality. On learning from history, I mean, something that's quite topical now, and it seems to me we have forgotten a lot of historical lessons, is inflation. What inflation does to an economy, what rising interest rates do to an economy. Do you think the fact of having short memories is affecting the way we are facing up to what looks like a potential problem with inflation going forward? I mean, firstly, I'm all for people learning lessons from history, but they've got to learn the right lessons. And, you know, it, it quite annoys me when you're looking at UK inflation at about 3%. And people are talking about, is this a return to the 1970s? 3% is the kind of thing policymakers would have killed for in the 1970s. You know, at the moment, there is necessarily a worry about the 1970s because, you know, for monetary policymakers, for central bankers, the 70s is the one thing you want to avoid. Now, I would say, actually, you know, the UK is in a very different position. Unions are much less powerful. The labour market is much more liberalised, much more flexible. You're not going to get that sort of wage price spiral you had in the 1970s or the 1960s. And the economy uses less energy. It's less susceptible to energy price shocks. The world is more globalised. Policymakers, hopefully, 
have a better handle on what they're doing. I don't think we are returning to that sort of world. Where I think it is interesting is, you know, if, if you listen to the Chancellor's public utterances at the moment, he is utterly determined to avoid interest rates rising. He's always talking about the threat of an interest rate rise and what that would mean for household budgets, what that would mean for the government's budget. But again, we're in a world of incredibly low interest rates. You know, roughly the lowest they've been in about three to 5,000 years, depending on which data set you prefer. And I think, you know, it would be useful for policymakers to keep a bit of perspective here. You know, if the Bank of England does raise interest rates back to 0.5% or 0.75% or even 1%, these are still historically very low numbers. Yes, we might be in a period of gradual interest rate rises over the next two or three years, but from historically low to still historically extremely low. Yeah, that's interesting. I must confess that I myself am a victim of this syndrome in the sense that I bought my first house on Black Wednesday. So within <laughs> within the first four hours of my my initial experience of home ownership, interest rates went from 10 to 15%. And I remember being on the phone to my mum about midday <laughs> saying, I can't afford this house anymore. Absolutely delighted when the RM collapsed. But that, that makes me think, sure, interest rates are at a very, very low level, but people are used to them being at a low level. So wouldn't even a moderate increase have significant significant effects on people who essentially are over leveraged, who borrowed an awful lot on the assumption that interest rates would stay very, very low forever. Yeah, I mean, on one level, that's completely right that, you know, the Bank of England cut interest rates to 0.5% in 2009. And, you know, we've had now well over a decade of interest of the Bank of England base rate being below 1%. You know, you've got to have taken out a mortgage quite a while ago to have any experience of what a material rise in interest rates feels like so people might be not prepared for the shock. On the other hand, I think, you know, one of, one of the really interesting things that's happened over the last two or maybe more decades is that, you know, interest rates used to be thought of as a tool of macroeconomic policy. You raised and lowered interest rates to hit other objectives, you know, low inflation, low unemployment, stable growth. Mm -hmm. Whereas politicians now often talk about low interest rates as a good in and of themselves. You know, Rishi Sunak talks about the need to keep interest rates low. George Osborne used to talk about the need to keep interest rates low. And they've almost switched from being a tool to a target in and of themselves. I mean, one of, one of the recurrent themes of the book, and it's a book of political economy rather than a book of, about economics, I think it's fair to say, is, yeah. is the theme of powerful political interest. And I suppose there are, just to round us up, there are, there, are, there are two questions that come of that. Firstly, building on what you just said, does this attitude towards interest rates uh, reflect the sort of all-powerful status of homeowners in the UK economy at the moment? Yes, I think it does. And, you know, it's, it, and there's a strange sort of paradox here that you often see older voters, retired people complaining that interest rates are too low, saying they want more income on their savings, but they don't actually want interest rates to be higher because if interest rates are higher, mortgages are pricier, house prices fall. And you've got this very powerful cohort of homeowners in Britain, for many of whom the house is the, the huge bulk of their assets. They like those house prices to be kept high. There are lots of them. They disproportionately vote and they disproportionately vote Conservative. Yeah, which means that sort of hope of rebanding of council tax and things like that are, let's just say, politically rather problematic. Just talking of politically problematic and to end on, I mean, this when we're recording this, it's a day after the government came out with those raft of proposals and announcements about net zero. I mean, isn't that the mother of all problems when it comes to entrenched political interest? That is to say, we're asking people to make sacrifices now 
account for benefits that we will appreciate fully in 30 or 40 years time. What sense do you have about how possible this might be that the government can pull this off? Assuming, of course, the government wants to. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right. This, this is the mother of all political economy problems. You're asking people to spend, you know, you look at the projections, you're asking the government and the taxpayer and firms to spend a lot of money in the 2020s and the early 2030s for benefits which come through in the 2040s. And, you know, being slightly cynical about it, many of the government's current voters who will be being asked to pay more now will be dead by the late 2040s. They'll see no benefit. I'm not massively confident that the government has the political will to do the necessary this side of a general election. One has to hope that after a general election, so in the mid-2020s, you can start to catch up. But, you know, you know, I called the book 200 Years of Muddling Through. You know, the default setting of British governments, I think, is to muddle through. And my fear is, without the right political coalition being there, then climate change might also be one of those things that the government attempts to muddle through rather than decisively deal with. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably even slightly more cynical than you are in the sense that we're always this side of a general election, aren't we? As soon as we've had one, governments and political parties seem to start preparing for the next one immediately. So it is, I mean, it is a fascinating sort of political economy conundrum, but I I share your concern, actually, that it's hard to see some of those promises being delivered on. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you, when you look at, you know, Britain's made a huge amount of progress relative to some of our peers in terms of decarbonisation, you know, electricity grid, et cetera. But, you know, we've done, we've done to an extent the easy stuff. We've done the stuff which doesn't directly affect households. And it's when you start talking about, you've got to change your boiler, you've got to change your car and you've got to pay more taxes that people are going to really, really, you know, if there's going to be a reaction, the reaction is now, I think. I mean, for our listeners, let me just say that the book is called 200 Years of Muddling Through. It is a really good read, apart from anything else. And it is really, really interesting, just simply for the thing we've been discussing, which is the fact that if you think you've got a new idea, it's been tried before when it comes to economic policy. And Duncan goes through what the effects of trying it before were really nicely. And if I can understand it, anyone can understand it, because you all know by now I don't understand any economics. But Duncan been an absolute pleasure talking to you i hope you'll come back on and discuss your next book with us once you've written that and i'll figure out what substack is quite soon thank you so much for having me it's been delight. delight